We're going to be doing some reading this morning, Exodus chapter 25. So we are marching through Exodus. We have one, two, three weeks after this, and we'll be done. Next week, we'll be hearing from Roger and Tammy, and then three weeks after that, we'll be finished with the book of Exodus. And we're looking at big chunks of texts. We're covering, we're going by leaps and bounds, not tippy-toeing through this text, looking at the big major themes. And what we're looking at this morning is uh, the contents of the tabernacle. So last week, we discussed the tabernacle and how God gave the instructions for the tabernacle to Moses, and Moses relayed that to the children of Israel while they're in the wilderness. They'd just been freed from Egypt. Um, and God said this is, he, he laid out the law. He gave the Ten Commandments. He said this is what holy living looks like. The people said we, we hear you, God, and we, we will obey. And then the covenant, that covenant, the law that was given by God between God through Moses and God and man, that covenant was confirmed with the shedding of blood. So they, they, they killed a bull, uh, they spilled his blood, and they put it on the altar, they put it on the people, and they put it on the law, and they said, this covenant is now affirmed or confirmed. After that point, Moses went back up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where God's presence was, literally. He said the mountain was, was trembling, it was, had great smoke, there was a consuming fire that God's presence had come down and met with the people through the mediator, Moses. So Moses goes back up on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's where we pick up here. And Moses is hearing from God what God's presence looks like among men. So God is receiving, God is giving Mo Moses information about what his presence will look like. Because part of the covenant is that God will dwell with you, men, my people, the children of Israel, my chosen people. And I will be with you, and I'm making you promises that I will take you safely by my hand to the promised land. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. Last week we discussed three different points that God's presence has to look like God's way. And God gives detailed instruction on what the temple and what the, or excuse me, the tabernacle and the, uh, the court of the tabernacle look like. And this is as best to scale as I can write, but this outer line here is a court, a courtyard. All right, so it's just uh, uh, curtains that are hung about seven and a half feet tall, 150 feet by 75 feet. And then this is the actual tent tabernacle that's going on right here. We talked about all those different things last week. What this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the things that are inside. All right, there's six items. There's a bronze altar, there's a bronze basin, there's a golden lampstand, a golden table, a golden altar for incense, and the Ark of the Covenant that's in the Holy of Holies. And we're just going to walk through those six different pieces and uh, what God said about them, why they're important, why they were important then, and why they're important now for us. So, this is where we are. Um, the instructions for the ark of the, the instructions for the furnishings within the tabernacle are given are given twice, and uh, the the largest amount of material in the book of Exodus is dedicated to the tabernacle. I mean, chapters and chapters and chapters at the end of Exodus are dedicated to the tabernacle and the furnishings, and they're given twice. They're given to Moses on his 40 days and 40 nights on top of the mountain. And when Moses comes off of the mountain to speak to the people, he finds them uh, in, in utter gross rebellion. So Moses comes down with the tablets, the, the Ten Commandments, written by the fingers of God on tablets of stone. And he comes down, he finds them uh, worshiping the golden calf. You've heard this story. And, and they're blaspheming God. Our back wall is cracked a little bit. Are you hearing some extra noise back there? I'll just try to speak, you know, scream a little louder. You guys laugh if I tell a joke. 
That way they think this is a really awesome class. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm killing it up here. <laughs> so Moses goes down. There's judgment that is put on the people. They destroy the golden calf. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain. He receives the instructions again to give to the people. So there's two sets of identical instructions. We're only going to read one. I don't think it's necessary right now to read both of them. But what I do want to do is I do want to actually read this stuff. So I said this last week, and if you've ever tried the I'm going to read through the Bible in a year plan, it just seems like this is one of the spots where you get, you get hung up because it's a lot of numbers and measurements and gold and cubits and what is a cubit and what I mean, we don't worship in, in a tabernacle or a temple anymore, so why is this important? But I do want to work through this material um, and this will help fuel our understanding of why the tabernacle was important and why it's important for us to understand what it was all about as we understand the gospel as it applies to our life today. Okay? So, <clears throat> we're going to read this in the order that it's given. But I'm going to teach through it in, in a different order as if you were actually walking through the tabernacle and the core of the tabernacle. So, Exodus chapter 25, verse 10 is where we're going to start. And this is the instructions for... The Ark of the Covenant. We're going to read through verse 22. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits. A cubit is 18 inches, so a foot and a half. I'll go through some of these measurements later, but just, just so you know, as a reference point. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other. You shall make a pole of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The pole shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put it into the ark, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give to you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat. With their wings, their faces to one another, towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I have given you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Continuing on for the table of bread in the next text there, beginning chapter 25, verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with gold, with pure gold, and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. You shall make for it four gold rings, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the temple shall be carried with these, and you shall make its plates and its dishes for incense, and its flagons and its bowls, which you pour drink offerings, which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. 
and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Next, the golden lampstand, beginning in verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece, one, one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups make made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on the branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower and the other on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongs and its trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Next, we're going to bump up a couple chapters to chapter 27, verse 1, which is the bronze altar. Chapter 27, verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the, next, so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried you shall make it hollow with boards and it has as it has been shown to you on the mountain so it shall be made next bump up to chapter 30 verse 1 there's only two more of these the altar of incense <coughs> Chapter 30, verse 1, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense, and you shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Its top and around its side and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron, sit up, and when Aaron sets up the lamps at, lamps at twilight, he shall burn a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generation. It is most holy to the Lord. 
and then jump to the same chapter, chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Finally, the bronze basin. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and their feet. And they went, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so they may not die. It shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Thank you for listening uh, as, we, as we work through that. I do think it's important. Now, it's, I think it's completely understandable to, to work through that and just be like, whoa, Danny, I mean, what did you just read? I get that there's, there's symbolism there and there's a reason why God did all of these things, but I mean, where does this go and why is this important uh, for us? Well, if you were a part of the children of Israel um, and you were at Mount Sinai under Moses' leadership, I think it would be a good question to ask, what does it look like for you to have a right relationship with God? What does it look like for you to have a right relationship with God? Now, that is a big question. I've said this before. It, it kind of rocked my life when I heard it years ago, but I was listening to, I don't even remember his name, but there was a, a guy, a philosopher at CSU who came and was giving these lectures, and I was having a hard time listening because it was a little boring. But one of the things that he said was the two most important questions that you can ask in, in, in all of creation is, is there a God? Everyone needs to figure out, what, what do I believe? What does creation show me? Is there a God? Number two, has he spoken? Because if the first answer to the first question is yes, if there is a God, then that is incredibly important. I mean, that is of the ultimate importance. The next question follows suit. If there is, in fact, a God and I am not him, has he spoken? What has he said? And whatever he has said, I need to base my entire life on. I need to listen to God. So the children of Israel believed in God. God had manifested himself to them. They saw him with their eyes. They had seen him work miraculously through the ten plagues. They knew the promise that he had given to their forefathers, Abraham, uh, centuries before, and that God was fulfilling those promises, and that God was actually present with them. He was present in the cloud. He was, he was present in the light. He was present on the mountain. And, and Moses was speaking to God, and the people were shaking and trembling with fear because they knew that God was there. They saw him. They felt him. They were affected by his presence. And Moses came down with words from God, and they believed him. And they said to God, yes, we believe. And God continued to speak. And as God continued to speak, he said, this is what a relationship with me looks like. I have made you promises. I will be your God. I will fight your battles. We looked in here uh, a couple weeks ago at the promise confirmed, where God says, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be like a hornet. I'm going to, I'm going to level the mountains so that you can walk waltz into the promised land. All right? You're not going to defeat all these people. I'm going to defeat these people. And I'm going to give you as an inheritance a land that is ready, that is turnkey. The cities will already be built for you. The crops will already be planted for you. A, a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning a land of, of great abundance, if you follow my ways. So there's a lot at stake here. This isn't a warm, fuzzy, do I believe in God or don't I believe in God? Like there is concrete information and facts and sensory issues going on here where God has made himself known. He said this is what a right relationship looks like. 
Here's the law. All right, man is sinful. Man has broken my law. We see the Ten Commandments. We see the laws for holy living. And that in order for there to be a restoration of relationship between holy God and unholy man, there must be the shedding of blood. And it's not just a random, you decide what that looks like, and you decide if it should be a lamb or a bird or a goat or a bull or on your property or someone else's property. God says, listen, this is, needs to be done my way. So I'm going to outline it for you. And there's all sorts of uh, levels of, 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 of concrete information that we see. This is a representation of the coming relationship of Jesus Christ. A lot of times as, as we've walked through Exodus, we've talked about types, T-Y-P-E. It's, it's a literary feature that is a foreshadowing of something greater, something that is laid out for the children of Israel, and they have not been fully informed on how God's promises will come to completion. So what we see is the spattering of types. We see examples. We see incomplete images of something that is greater coming. So we have Moses, for example, who is a type of Christ because he is the one who is a mediator between God and man. He is the one who has gone up on the mountain. He is the one who is speaking the word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. So Jesus is known as the word, but Moses is delivering the word to the people. And it goes on and on and on of all these types that there's a better Moses coming, it says in the New Testament, and that's Jesus. So all of these things that are pointing to something more fully to be realized, but they don't know it yet. And this right here is a screaming example of something better that is coming. So these elements and these pieces and the, and the ritual and the ceremony and the law, like this is how you do each of these things and how you approach God, are there intentionally and very, very much on purpose because God is the one who is setting the standard. This is my standard for righteousness, and this is my standard for restitution and restoration and atonement. And it requires the shedding of blood. It requires the shedding of blood of, of one who is, quote, unquote, innocent, which is seen through an animal, to, to, to be a substitution for one who is not innocent, man. But it is incomplete, and it has to be done, and then done, and then done again, and then done again. And all of this is, is outlined to the people through Moses from the mouth of God. So if you are a part of the children of Israel and you're in the wilderness, and you, and you are in awe of God, and you've seen what God has done, that he has, he has won the day, he has defeated your enemies, he has destroyed your enemies, and you have not yet set foot in the promised land, but that is where you're going, and God says, we have to establish this covenant. Yes, we agree, we believe you, God, we will obey. The covenant is confirmed. Now, what does forward motion look like? God says, I will come down off the mountain, and I will dwell in your camp. I'm going to be here with you. You can see this, that there are people dedicated among you that later we'll see are, are the Levites who will actually walk in here. And instead of Moses, the priest will be the one who is able to speak to God on your behalf as a people. And they will be the mediator and the moderator between God and man. But it's a specific people. And they approach me a specific way because I am holy and I am worth this instruction. It is, this isn't a passerby. This isn't come as you are. This isn't, hey, God is our best friend. God is God, and he sits on a throne that we see, and you do not approach the king unclean. And this is the outline. This is the outline for the children of Israel in the Old Testament as a shadow of something much, much better to come. So let's walk through this. If you're not a priest, 
You're one of the children of Israel. How would you approach the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle and the court of the tabernacle? What does this look like? This is the presence of God, a predetermined and defined holy place. The first thing that you do is you enter into the court of the tabernacle. And again, this is a defined holy place. God has said to the children of Israel, speaking to them as he, cha- as he charged uh, Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can go to the mountain and worship me and serve me. The same mountain where Moses, years earlier, had met the burning bush. And God said, this place, this specific place, has received, has been infused with holiness from me. So a non-holy mountain has become holy because I, as God, have made it holy. So take off your shoes. This is holy ground. In the same sense, God has said, I'm designating this area to be holy because my presence is there. I'm infusing holiness upon it. People would enter into this court, according to commentator Warren Wearsby, and they would approach this bronze altar, which is the first thing that we reach right here. They would approach the bronze altar where they would be met by a priest, and, and the people of Israel would come and they would bring a goat or a bull. The priest would inspect the offering before killing it, and then would burn it on the altar. And an innocent victim, an innocent victim died, meaning the animal, for a guilty sinner. This is outlined in Leviticus chapter one. The animal that you would bring would be an animal that was without blemish. When you would present it to the priest, your hand would be on its head, representing a transfer of responsibility. A priest would inspect it and slaughter it and then shed its blood. Uh, when I'm reading through all these things and looking at measurements and everything, I, I like to have it five to six four. So that's the scale. Um, you see this line right here? This would be the bronze altar. And it would go down about seven inches to about down to here. So this is going to be our, our scale. You kind of get it? Okay. So this would be the bronze altar. And there were many sacrifices that were offered to God on the bronze altar. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, says, When Christ appeared as the high priest, all right, so the, the, the high priest was a type, was a foreshadowing of a better high priest, Jesus Christ. Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest, he appeared of the good things that have come even through the greater and more perfect tent, all right, so this is the tent that God said, but there is a more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He, meaning Christ, entered once and for all into the holy places, plural. These are all holy places. Inside the court is a holy place. Um, Inside the tabernacle is a holy place. And then inside where the Ark of the Covenant is, the back third of the tent is the most holy or the holy of holies. But Christ entered not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. What do you do? Here's, here's the mental picture in my mind. What do you do with a coupon? You redeem it, right? You have something that's good, but it's not good until you, you, you cash it in. You, you redeem it. So the blood of the bull, the blood of the calf, redeemed you for a, a, a certain period of time. Because it was not eternal. But because of Christ's death, and he was perfect, he was not an animal, 
but he was a sinless human. He is able to secure redemption eternally for you. 9.13, Hebrews 9.13, it says, If the sprinkling of blood of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with ashes sanctifies or purifies the flesh, remember flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a flesh and there's a conscience. Um, we'll purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. All right, so purifying our flesh means our, our momentary purification, but purifying our conscience means our eternal purification, meaning that we are without guilt, even to the point of our conscience. So you come in, and this is where you would offer your sacrifice, but the priest would be the one who would take the sacrifice from you, would slaughter the animal, would burn it on the offering, and take its blood. The next item that we see in the temple courtyard is the bronze altar. This is the bronze basin. There are not dimensions given for this, so it's not up on the board. A priest who would be a Levite, meaning he is consecrated by God, would wash his hands in the bronze basin before he would receive any sacrifices from the people. He would wash because they were continually dirty, both physically and spiritually. So they're in the wilderness. Uh, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to Israel, and it's dusty and it's dirty, and it's what you would think. Um, you walk along through the wilderness, and it's like poofs of cloud dust, like that kind of dusty. And uh, I was kind of jumping around these rocks. There was just rocks everywhere, and one rock was not stable, and I fell hard <laughs> in front of everybody. And the guide was like, are you okay? And it was that situation where I'm like, <laughs> and a uh, huge, huge bruise. Uh, but anyway, so I stood up, and, you know, I'm all dirty, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But you're just dirty, and you, you approach God clean, spiritually and physically. Uh, and, and, I mean, it's such a pale example, but, I mean, if you think of a president or a dignitary, of somebody of, 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 of high value, like, you, you're going to clean up. You're going to put your suit on. You're going you're gonna to shave. You're going to wash up. You're going to do whatever, because this, this is a big deal. It is, again, it is not a come as you are. So there's a fig figurative and a spiritual cleansing that continually goes on. But before the priest meets you here to collect the offering that is a substitution for your sins, he must wash himself as a representation of washing himself of sin, but also washing himself physically. Aaron, who was uh, the first of the Levites, and his sons would wash their hands before entering the tent uh, and before they would go near the altar to minister. They would wash their hands so they would not die, Scripture says. So this is not just, hey, this is a good idea, or hey, you're going to go see somebody important, so why don't you clean up a little bit? I mean, this is God. And this is what he said, coming into my presence and doing my work has to be done my way. And it's not just like, a, uh, you should do better next time. My, my way, or else there's consequences. If it's not done my way, it's sin. Sin leads to death. Um, Warren Wiersbe also says that water in Scripture um, is symbolic in many different ways. Sometimes water for drinking is a sign of the Holy Spirit. But also while uh, water is a sign of cleansing and washing, as is the word of God. Um, 
Psalm 119.9, this is Danny's paraphrase, it says, how as a young man do I keep myself pure? Or, or in one version it says clean or cleansed. It, but by the word of God. But by the word of God. I'm guarded by the word of God. Um, John chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Jesus uh, drops down and is going to wash the disciples' feet. Remember this story? And one of his disciples said, no, you don't need to wash my feet. You know, you're, you're a big deal. And Jesus says, if I must wash your feet. And, and Peter says, um, well, then wash all of me. And Jesus says, you're already clean. You've been cleaned by the word. And if you're already clean, you don't need a, you don't need a bath, but you need just your feet cleaned. And some of you are not, have not been cleaned by the word, speaking of Judas. And so there's many other examples of how God, through Jesus, is, is called the word, but we also have the word of God, and that this is a cleansing agent right here. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's speaking of husbands and wives. It says, husbands, love your wives. As Christ has loved the church and has given himself up for her, that he, meaning Christ, might sanctify the church, having cleansed her, the church, by the washing of water with the word. All right, so there's a washing element of the word of God. And what we see here, again, as we're walking through the offering of blood for the remission and the redemption of our sins, but also there's a washing of the word that happens as believers that we need continually in our lives. After this, a priest and a priest only could enter into the tent or the tabernacle itself. This is the tent section here, 45 feet by 15 feet. The priest would walk in in your place as a representative to God for you. He would enter the holy place, and immediately to his right would be the table for the bread or the bread of the presence. So, again... I like to figure out what this is supposed to look like. Not as big as maybe you would think, but this is the table for the bread, made of acacia wood um, and covered in gold. And it would be immediately to your right as you entered into the tabernacle, right here. Tabernacle was 15 feet by 45 feet, so I've kind of taped it off in here. Um, but along this line of chairs right here to this wall is 15 feet. And then 30 feet right here would be the veil where you would enter the Holy of Holies. And then this is kind of the corner right here. You got the visual there? So this is the Holy of Holies, 15 by 45. Ark of the Covenant would be right about here. You walk through the veil. The only, excuse me, bread of the presence, lampstand, and the altar of incense. All are built of acacia wood and inlaid or covered in gold, except for the lampstand, which was 75 pounds of pure gold. So you would walk into the holy place, not the most holy place, but you'd walk into the holy place, and to your right would be the table of the bread or the bread of the presence. Exodus 25, verse 30 says, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. We see elsewhere in Scripture in Leviticus that that would happen weekly on the Sabbath. There would be uh, 12 rounds or loaves of bread uh, set in two stacks, six each, 
on the bread on the table of the presence. And the table of the presence is exactly that, that it's a representation of the people as the bread uh, before God. So as the children of Israel that are not Levites and you're not allowed into the temple, keep saying temple, you're not allowed into the tabernacle, that your presence is before God represented by the bread of the presence. So you're going to be out working, doing business, uh, working the crops and working your fields and, and, and handling your family. But as you were there, there's always a mental and spiritual connection that you are represented continually before God at the bread, with the bread of the presence on the table for the bread. <coughs> we see this in Leviticus chapter 24. Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament says, If you have been raised with Christ, who brings in the new covenant and the fulfillment of all these things, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're going to get to this later when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant is, the, is, is, is literally the throne of God, where God says, I and, and this is not symbolic. Uh, later it says, I'll, I'll, I don't have it memorized, numbers somewhere, that, um, that Moses goes and, and hears audibly from God as he's sitting on the mercy seat. All right, so God, in, in whatever mysterious way that is, is, is physically present on the mercy seat, which isn't that far-fetched of an idea. We, we, this is a rabbit trail, but I mean, it's, in, in the New Testament and in the age that we're living in right now, we have the Holy Spirit among us. So we do not go to places where we, there's a manifestation of God. There is not a holy room. There's not a holy closet. There's not a holy classroom in here that, that God is among us. And that's part of the better fulfillment. That is part of the better covenant. That is part of the better promises that we see. But God, if God is God and he has manifested himself as we see throughout the course of Scripture and that the future fulfillment of our promise is that when we go to heaven, we will physically be in the presence of God, and we can have conversations with him and walk and talk with him as Adam and Eve did, we see that this time in the course of history is more of an anomaly, that there isn't a physical manifestation of God. Does that make sense? But there will be, and there once was. But we have God's presence among us, in us now, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity. So again, in, in Colossians, if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So if you're in one of the tribes of the children of Israel and you're going about your, your daily business, you are to set your minds and set your hearts on the things that are above where God is, even though you're not physically present with him. Again, in Colossians 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, meaning it is present there. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, speaking one day. So that is the table of the presence to the right as you enter into the tabernacle. To the left, you have the golden lampstand made of one talent of gold or 75 pounds. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We see throughout Scripture the representation of light connected with God. That God is the one who turns on the lights. God is the one who enlightens. God is the one who shows us the way. Psalm 119. Uh, I lost it. Maybe nine. Um, 
Thy word is a, is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. That, that you are the one, God, who shows me where to go. That, that sin is darkness, and you are the only light. And light always defeats the darkness. Psalm 119.130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. In verse 18, it says, Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous thing of your law. Show me the way. Turn around the lights. We see this as a representation of the light that we are given through the work of Christ. The next thing that we see in the uh, tabernacle, bread of the presence. This, this would kind of be the middle. This is bread of the presence over here. Uh, the golden lampstand. And this, this would look like a menorah. You know what a menorah is? It has, it's, it's a light pole and it has three branches on each side and one in the middle for a total of seven. seven. And it, uh, scripture says in what we had already read that when the priests come in, they So not that big, but there would be an offering of an offering of incense, and there was a prescribed mixture for the incense, um, recipe, if you will. Um, and it seems like it's so easy just to say, well, what's, what's the point, what's the big deal of, of, a, of a certain incense? And to be honest, I don't exactly know, but it is out, it was, it was outlined and measured Specifically in scripture, and it says, do not offer an unauthorized incense. And if you are, you should pass out to the people. So you take this incense offering, and all throughout scripture, we also see incense uh, representative of prayer. We see it in Revelation, we see it in Psalms, um, that your prayers are a sweet-smelling offering to God. It would, it would be a, 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 an incense that the people would see, like from the smoke, but they would also smell it. And it would be a call so the, the priest would come in and he would light the, uh, the wick and he would offer the incense as well. Uh, the fire that would, that would light the incense was fire that was supposed to be taken from the bronze altar. And this is, this is very representative. That, that the fire that fuels your prayers is all based on the blood of Christ. I mean, isn't that a cool connection? That this fire right here that is consuming uh, the sanctification and the redemption of your sins is supposed to be transferred over here to enable our, our prayers. That we, we are not able to pray, we are not able to speak to God except by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a story in um, Leviticus chapter 10 of two priests, the sons of Aaron, who offered unauthorized, who offered unauthorized fire on the altar of incense and fire came from heaven fire came from God and consumed them and it said that Aaron, their, their father held his peace I can't imagine that he wouldn't be devastated but a they offered unauthorized fire that it was not through the means by which God had said you will offer my, sac my sacrifice to, to make this relationship tried to circumvent. They went outside. They made their own rules, and they said, this is how I now want to pray. This is now how I want to praise. This is now how I want to approach God. And God said, hey, 
And similarly, Jesus said in the New Testament that there's a model for our prayers in, in the Lord's Prayer. It's not something that, you, that we just have to sit here and recite and say this is the only prayer that God hears, but there is a model to it. There is a way that even now in the New, in the new Covenant we, we approach God. We approach God worshipfully, humbly, making our requests known to him, acknowledging that his will is to be done in heaven and on earth, and, and asking that he would be the one that delivers us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the priest would walk in. Uh, once a week would offer the, the, the bread of the presence, would light the candles, would light the way, offer the uh, offering of incense on the, the golden altar of incense as an act of prayer. And then once a year, the high priest would enter into the most holy place. Once a year, only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, which we find in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of the Atonement was the one day a year where um, the sins of the people, um, there were many, we're not getting into the entire sacrificial system here. There's, there's a lot to it. But there was one day a year that the, the priest would approach God into the veil with the blood of the sacrifice and offer it on the mercy seat, sprinkle it on the mercy seat as an act of atonement for the people. And this had to be done every year. It was on the tenth day of the seventh month, and the high priest, only the high priest, would cleanse himself physically, ceremonially. He would put on white robes. He would offer a blood sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer a blood sacrifice as a representative uh, for the people. He would then sacrifice a goat and take the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant... wood covered in gold within it was the testimony the ten commandments that the, the law that was written by god and the ark of the covenant had a, a lid essentially and the lid is what we would we call the mercy seat the mercy seat had the two angels the two cherubim that were facing each other with outstretched wings closed and it over and it covers over the mercy seat which is the throne of god number seven this is what i was referencing before number seven 89 says, when Moses went into the tent to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, the, the, the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Now, we need to acknowledge in a cool way that in, in this setting here, the very throne of God has a name, and it's called mercy. The throne of God is on the law. It's sitting on the law. And the law is, is both good and terrible. Uh, the law tells us what we need to know, but it also points out that we're, we're sinners. The law is what points out that we are, we are imperfect and we are incomplete without without some help, that there's a broken relationship between God and man. But the very throne that God is sitting on is called the mercy seat. And mercy, by definition, is to withhold due punishment. That, that, that you and I are guilty, and it is mercy 
that withholds that due punishment. In 1 John 2, 2, speaking of Jesus, it says that he, Jesus himself, is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That propitiation is a big, long word that we don't use anymore, but propitiation means the, the receiving of judgment. That Christ is the, is the judgment bearer, that Christ is the wrath bearer, and that's the mechanism by which we receive mercy from God. That God's laws are found to be complete through the work of Christ. That when we approach God, he isn't just saying, you know what, forget about it. You know, don't worry about it. We all sin. I'm just going to forgive you. That's not how it works. Forgiveness is offered, but it is offered because of propitiation. Because there has been, <clears throat> a, 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 there has been a sacrifice. There has been a, a spilling of blood. And it is, it is the eternal, perfect spilling of blood that is routed through Christ. Thus, he is the propitiation. And, and the result of that is that you receive mercy. That we have a God of mercy. And even now we can approach God through the cleansing of the word and through the offering of sacrifice and that we are in his presence and he has enlightened us and our prayers are heard by him and that we can come through here because of Christ and approach the very throne of God. In, in the New Testament, Christ died on the cross. There was an actual literal ripping of the veil of the Holy of Holies saying that, we, that mankind is now free to enter. Before that, you would die. You would drop dead if you walked through that curtain and you were not cleansed. But now we have access to God in the new covenant. So we have mercy, we have propitiation, and the whole concept of the day of atonement that would happen once a year is fulfilled. We see in Hebrews 9, it says that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that right there, which are copies of the true things. All right, so this is a type, it says here in Hebrews. It's not my idea that these are copies of the true things. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, before, that Christ has actually entered before God on his now throne to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews 9.25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then the high priest would have to suffer repeatedly and even since the foundation of the earth. But as it is, he, meaning Christ, has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him, or to take us to heaven, or we will be with him in the presence of God forever. So there is a law in the Ark of the Covenant, and on that law is the very presence of God, the foundation that God has said, I'm establishing my relationship between God and man, but you are broken, and this relationship is broken, but I sit on the mercy seat. And within this law is a system of redemption by the shedding of blood. And so I will offer my presence among you, the children of Israel, through the shedding of blood, through this system that must be done so that we can have communion. And now... Christ has come being a full, complete, satisfying version of this 
that the, all of this is pointing to the complete version of what we see in Christ. And now we participate in a, cer- in a ceremony that is required, not just a good idea, but we call it the Lord's Supper. To remind us of what Christ has done. That we, 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 we eat his flesh and drink his blood symbolically, figuratively, remembering what Christ has done, that he is the ultimate sacrifice, and it doesn't have to be done over and over, that we have access to the very throne of God through the mediator, moderator, which is Christ. So, all of this was the way that the children of Israel, when they were living obediently, lived for a couple thousand years. This isn't just like a, hey, I want you to do this for a little while. After they took the promised land, um, this uh, was built into a temple, Solomon's, King Solomon's temple, with the exact same model, just on a grander scale. It was huge. Um, and it had a holy of holies. It had these altars. It had the basin. It had the lampstand. It was tore down when the children of Israel continued in generational sin, and they were taken to captivity in Babylon, and then it was rebuilt uh, before the time of Christ in what we would call Herod's temple. That is now gone, but Christ said, you tear this temple down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple is me. And when Christ left, and he ascended after his resurrection, he said, I'm leaving myself with you. I'm leaving the Holy Spirit with you. I'm going to be with my Father, and there I will go before you to prepare a place, and I will come again to draw you unto myself, but until then, I will leave with you the Counselor. I will leave with you my Holy Spirit, because your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is in you. So as we look at these things and we look at the Old Testament, and uh, I totally understand how it, we can get bogged down with all the stuff that we read. Um, and I hope that this has been encouraging and enlightening and uplifting and nourishing and refreshing as we see the model that we see here as it points to Christ. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for what we see here in the Old Testament. Father, this was of the utmost importance for a right relationship with the children of Israel. And Father, these things were not to be taken lightly. And Father, I thank you that it isn't this way anymore. That we have a fuller, better, new covenant in Christ. And Father, I ask that you would help each each one of us in this room, that as we go into our week, that we would be encouraged and we would, we would realize that we are represented before the throne of God, that we have access in our prayers, in our life, in our offerings to you. I thank you for that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.